You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. We'll be reading from John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10, and 19 through 23. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the Lord's being, the doors excuse me, being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, before you sit, just one more moment, because I'm going to dismiss Redemption Hill kids. But before I do that, uh, we're going to let you know what the kids, especially ages 5 to 9, will be learning. And so we have our confession of faith. And the question, again, is coming from our New City Catechism. I'm going to read the question, and then we're going to respond together as a congregation. So here is the question. This is what kids are learning. This is what we want to uh, drink deeply in as well. What does Christ's resurrection mean for us together? Jesus Christ, as the God-man, united both full humanity and full deity in his person. In him, humanity reached its fullest expression, and through his spirit, all of his people are empowered to live for his glory. At his resurrection, he received a glorified body, the first fruits of the resurrection. Upon his return, his people will likewise receive glorified bodies, and they shall enjoy his presence and glorified bodies and souls made perfect forever. Thank you. You may sit down. If it serves you kids, you may go to Redemption Hill Kids right now. So ages 2 to 4, and then 5 to 9. Well, the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty, so we have every reason to rejoice this morning. And we know this, but it's worth saying again. Not only this morning, but every single day in which you have a breath of life, you have the great opportunity to rejoice because the tomb is empty. 
And as you can tell from the public reading of Scripture, I'll be preaching from the Gospel of John. And from John 20, I'm taking two approaches to this Easter sermon. First, the Christian faith hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, just think about that for a moment. The Christian faith hinges on the fact, the historical fact, that Jesus rose from the dead, that the tomb is empty. So I want to I address why, right? There's, a, there's general agreement between Christians and non-Christians that Jesus was crucified. There's very little debate about that. But for Jesus to demonstrate he is the Son of God, he needed to rise from the dead. He needed to walk out of the grave, out of the tomb. So that's one approach I'll be looking at this morning. Second, if you believe in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has called you to respond to Christian. I mean, this is more than just an intellectual exercise. And as we see specifically from verses 19 to 23, Jesus is telling his disciples to respond. And we want to look at how. What does that mean? What does it mean to respond to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? So we'll answer that from verses 19 to 23. So let me pray briefly for God's help as I need it every time I preach. And then we'll get into the text. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that as we come to this Sunday, this Resurrection Sunday, that we indeed can rejoice. We can rejoice at the work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we are just reminded, we need reminders because we forget so easily, we are reminded again afresh that Jesus not only took the weight of sin at the cross, but to show he had power over death and sin. He rose from the grave. So help me this morning to be faithful to your word. I pray for hearts and ears empowered by the spirit that we will listen well to what you have to speak to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you know me, you know I love church history, so we're going to go to a little, do a little church history. But this is not a church theologian that I'll be quoting. From the second century, there's this guy named uh, Celsus. He's a Greek philosopher. He's uh, quite a skeptic, actually, to Christianity, in particular to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's what Celsus said about the resurrection. You will go on to say that your resurrection story, this climax of your tragedy, talking about the Christian story, right, the story of Christ, is believable and noble. But who really saw this? So you hear him questioning, like, that really happened? Did anyone really see that? A historical woman, referencing Mary, I think, as you admit, and perhaps another person, both deluded by his sorcery, or who else so wrenched with grief at his failure that they hallucinated him risen from the dead by what sort of wishful thinking, right? Right out of the gate, let's just talk about the skepticism of Celsus, right? Because we still have a lot of Celsus running around here today. Did that really happen? Celsus may have read the Gospel of John chapter 20 and dismissed it as fantasy. He may have considered John 20 a series of non-fictional stories about a good man named Jesus, right? Perhaps Jesus was just a wise teacher and no more. I hear a lot about that still today. The skeptic has a series of responses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I can't address every single skeptical conclusion, but I can give some responses to Celsus and perhaps to some of you. Here's how I would respond. I feel like we were just sitting down having a cup of coffee, just kind of talking it through. I would say this. First, tell me, Celsus, how did, it wasn't just one or two. Come on, let's be honest here. 
It wasn't just one or two people who saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. We're talking about over 500 people, and that's just what Scripture records. So tell me, how did so many people undergo some sorcery or hallucination? Come on, man. The resurrected Christ appeared to more than two people. We read in the Scriptures, at minimum, it was 500. That's just, like I said, what was recorded. If Celsius were alive today, I would I'd be like, hey, you need to at least amend your statement a little bit for me. Second, what Celsius fails to realize is that global movements, I'm talking about Christianity, have a hard time gaining traction because of sorcery or a non-fictional story. Instead, global movements happen because people are willing to live and die for truth. How else can you explain the martyrdom of thousands of Christians following the ascension of Jesus Christ? Christians were persecuted, get this, Christians were persecuted while not retaliating in return. Who does that? People who cling to truth. And as Christians died, Christianity began to spread. Did you know that Christianity, and I learned this a couple weeks ago as I was reading a book on early church history and persecution in particular, and I found this fascinating. Christianity is the only religious movement that grew without the help from the state while also being persecuted. So I'm thinking the first three centuries. Only religion to grow without help from the state, from the government. The growth of Christianity, I mean, we can view it somewhat as a miracle, right? In the decades following the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ, one Christian after another was crucified, starved to death, boiled to death, set on fire, just to name a few ways that they were tortured. Godly people did not die and refuse to defend themselves for a non-fictional story. There was not a mass hallucination going on. What Tertullian said in the third century is still true today. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Celsus did not see the resurrected Christ, but I surmised he would not have seen the resurrected Christ, even if Christ was standing right in front of him. Without faith, a person cannot believe in the resurrected Christ. Many did see and believe Jesus after his resurrection, and his, his appearance provided the spark that would set the world on spiritual fire with the good news of the gospel. Jesus, uh, John 20 is one of several places in the Bible where we see the spark become ablaze. We read in John 20 that Mary Magdalene came back to the tomb, right? But the stone in front of the tomb was re removed. And what was Mary's initial response? We read in verse 2. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. Like she, That was surprising to her. She went to the tomb thinking to herself, Jesus is going to be right there. He's still, he's still going to be in the tomb. And she gets there. She's like, what happened? Who took him? Who took, G who took the body of Christ? Mary's initial thought, it's not irrational, right? If I was Mary and I went to the tomb, I'd be like, where's the body? We don't know who Mary had in mind, who is the they in verse 2. We don't know. But one fact is certain. The body of the crucified Christ was not in the tomb. 
So Mary, what does she do? She goes back and tells Peter and John. John and Peter have like a, I just imagine this scene in my head. Mary goes back to Peter and John, tells them the body of Jesus is in there. Peter and John have a foot race to the tomb. John wins the foot race, which is interesting because John wrote this particular gospel. But I digress. And what do we see here? We see John knows what's going on. He was paying attention to the words of Christ during Jesus' earthly ministry. We read in verse 8, Then the other disciple, that's John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. This is quite a contrast, and I'm not going to get into it too much, but contrast the response of John to Thomas at the end of John 20. Doubting Thomas, right? John already knows what's going on. Now, it'll take a while for others to believe, but we see John knew, knew, knew what was up. Later in the evening, Jesus visits his disciples. It is from this visit where we see the internal conflict at work in some of his disciples. In John 20, verses 19 to 23, we see some of the disciples begin to change, right? Like what happened to the body of Jesus. But now we see in this particular passage, doubt is replaced with faith. Fear is replaced with what? Peace. The question that we are confronted with is this. Did Jesus rise from the dead? That's a very simple question. But how you answer the question determines the course of your life. Like, seriously, how you answer the question determines the course for your life. Did Jesus rise from the dead? His disciples were now confronted with that question. So Jesus sees the conflicts in his disciples, and he knew he was not done teaching them after he rose from the dead. His earthly ministry is not over yet. Jesus would fill them with faith, give them peace, and call them to respond to the, his miraculous resurrection. In John 20, we see the connection between the crucifixion and the resurrection and the response of his disciples. Jesus shows up in the room with holes in his wrists and a puncture in his side. Now, how would you respond if you were hanging out with family and friends and then a seemingly healthy person you thought to be dead shows up with holes in the wrists and puncture in the side? I mean, this kind of stuff is not supposed to happen, which is the point. <laughs> now, the risen Lord knew the heart of his disciples. Before Jesus entered the room, there was fear. Like, they were fear, fearful. After Jesus entered the room, there was faith and peace and a growing sense to respond to the miracle standing right in front of them. Verses 19 to 23 gives us insight into the hearts of the disciples, and really gives us insight to our heart as well. So from this passage, I want to make a couple observations, and I want to look directly at the words of Christ. So there's two, two observations I want, to, I want to make about the dramatic entrance of Jesus into this room. First, the Apostle John writes these verses to bring attention to the sudden appearance of Jesus. John wants the reader to know that no one unlocked the door to let Jesus in, verse 19. Like normal people go through a door. But Jesus is alive, and all of a sudden, it's like he's there. 
He's there with wounds still visible. The actual body of Christ has been transformed into a glorious resurrected body. That's what we read in our confession of faith. It is clear that Jesus appears in the room yet retains his physical characteristics. It is stunning that no one let Jesus in. He didn't have like a key or a wire pick. The door was locked. His disciples were hiding. They were afraid. And yet here's Jesus. Jesus showed up in front of this ragtag group of guys who I think maybe at that time had little motivation to continue the movement that Jesus began. Paul explains why in 1 Corinthians 15, why the resurrection is so essential to Christianity and why Jesus' sudden appearance would have been a spark for a global movement. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching and your faith, frankly, is in vain. Right? You see how the how the Christian faith hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is not enough to say that Jesus died. No resurrection means no Christianity. But Paul says a few verses later in 1 Corinthians 15, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The appearance of Jesus to his disciples was an absolute game changer. Like, you think about events that changed the world. This was a game changer. The resurrection of Jesus confirmed the scriptures. I think about 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. Christ died in accordance with scriptures. Christ was buried in accordance with the scriptures. Christ was raised in accordance with the scriptures. The resurrection of Jesus just kind of disregarded all human logic. Why? Because it was a miracle. The resurrection of Jesus would eventually empower his disciples through the Holy Spirit with the courage to respond to the gospel. And here is another stunning truth. Hear me very clearly. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is in you, Christian. The power that raised Jesus Jesus from the dead. Like, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Yes, yes and amen. Okay, good. It's now in you, Christian. The historical resurrection happened in a moment, but the power of the resurrection continues in you. Five or six years ago, and a couple days after an Easter service, Sharice sent me a text message about a conversation between uh, Chloe and Izzy, my two daughters, it went something like this. Izzy is talking to mom, saying, Happy Easter, mom. And Chloe, like a firstborn sister, she says, It's not Easter anymore, right? That's a couple days ago. And Izzy says, It's still Easter in my heart. It's a cute story. But there's a kernel of truth that is very powerful. Very powerful. The appearance of Jesus to his disciples the very day he walked away from the tomb, set into motion the most profound and powerful movement this world has ever seen. The appearance of Jesus to his disciples began to turn the world upside down, Acts 17.6. 
And God commands and invites his disciples to participate in his divine movement of the resurrected Christ. So the first observation is this. The resurrected Jesus shows up on the scene to his disciples. And then the presence of Jesus began to move the needle of faith in the hearts of the disciples. The resurrection of Jesus was not a figment of their imagination nor ours. The resurrection of Jesus was not the result of a few people hallucinating. It was not sorcery. It was a real, historical, and miraculous event. Also notice the reason why the room was locked, which is my second observation. Number two. The room door was locked because the disciples were fearful of the Jews. Verse 19. Just a few days earlier, the disciples witnessed the death of Jesus. Their leader, master, teacher was executed by hanging on a cross. Now they were fearful about their own life. Fear kept them isolated in a locked room. Now, I've got to pause and ask, do you blame the disciples for locking the door? I don't. I probably would have been right there with them. I'm not sure I would have reacted any different. So Jesus sees their fear. He sees my fear. He sees your fear. So Jesus addresses the fear. Fear needs to be dealt with. Why fear needs to be dealt with? Because it can be crippling. Fear can be a barrier to the gospel work in your own heart and in your entire life. So I think Jesus is touching on a nerve when it comes to the disciples' inability and sometimes our inability to actually respond to the resurrection. One of the primary reasons why Christians do not respond is sometimes because of fear, right? We're fearful. For the first century disciples and many Christians throughout the world in the 21st century, it's a fear of maybe physical death because of persecution. For you and me, it could be the fear of being thought differently by friends, neighbors, and families and, and co-workers. Perhaps you're fearful that the mob will come after you because of your faith in Christ. Like, how could you believe in such a silly story? How could you believe in a resurrection? Come on. Well, I, I do believe that. Internal fear can have wide-ranging effects on people. Fear can shut you down. Fear can make you irrational. Fear squeezes out hope. Honestly, I don't need to list out the thousands of ways uh, we can be overcome by fear. You all know right where you sit what brings fear into your heart and into your life. So here is the deal. Jesus wants to set you free from fear. It's what he's trying to do with his disciples in the room. And one way to be set free from fear is by tapping into the power of the resurrection. Whatever you fear, Jesus wants to address that this morning so that you may have, what does Jesus say here? Peace. And so Jesus addresses the fear of his disciples with the word peace. If there's, if there's one thing Christians and non-Christians can agree upon, it would be this. We all benefit from a little more peace, right? But the question becomes, where does peace come from? We read in verses 19 to 21, it's worth repeating. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. Jesus says it twice. Jesus says, Peace be with you when he enters the room, and then again when he calls his disciples to respond. Peace be with you from Jesus is the most appropriate greeting just hours he rose from the dead. One commentator said it like this. 
Shalom, which is Hebrew for, for peace. Shalom on Easter evening is the complement of his, it is finished on the cross. For the peace of reconciliation and life from God is now imparted. Shalom, accordingly, is supremely the Easter greeting. Not surprisingly, it is included, along with grace, in the greetings of every epistle of Paul in the New Testament. So all those letters that Paul wrote, he says, grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace. And so, on, so this, this Sunday morning, Easter Sunday, I could say, peace be with you, Christian. Christ says that to you. What fear do you got going on in your life right now? What makes you anxious? Our Lord says, peace be with you. We've got to understand what Jesus is trying to say here because overcoming fear and responding to the resurrection hinges rightly upon knowing what Jesus means when he says peace. So this is what Jesus does not mean when he says peace be with you. Jesus is not wishing you a trouble-free life, right? He's not wishing you a trouble-free life. Jesus is not concerned with world peace the way we often think about it, some utopia. Jesus is not talking about an absence of stress in your life. And Jesus isn't telling his disciples and you to find inner peace. If you just meditate long enough, you'll find that inner peace. It's funny, I was reading the Des Moines Registry last night. And in southeast Iowa, in the town of Fairfield, there's this guy, he's putting $500 million into this meditation ministry. And I'm reading, you know, John 20, and I'm reading the Des Moines Register. I'm like, the dude's going to fail. He's going to fail because he's trying to find peace in all the wrong places. And that's his goal. His goal, his stated goal, is that the, everyone in the world would have peace. That's his stated goal. Dude's going to fail. You can quote me. Dude is going to fail because he's looking in the wrong place for peace. The peace of God that Jesus offers his disciples and us pushes out the fear that it can exist in our life. It is a faith-infused peace that clings to the resurrected Christ. This peace, or shalom, encompasses all the blessings of the kingdom of God. This peace is a promise for every person who has faith in Christ Jesus. John records the words of Jesus earlier in this gospel. So a couple chapters before John 20. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. So this dude in southeast Minnesota, in Fair, or in southeast Iowa in Fairfield, he's given a different kind of peace that doesn't last. Jesus says, no, I got something better to give you. A better peace. And Jesus says, let your hearts not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The shalom or peace offered by Jesus, what is it? It is himself. It is a peace that soothes an anxious soul. It is a peace that provides hope when everything else seems hopeless. You could be in the middle of a hurricane, but if you have Christ, you can be the most peaceful person in the entire world. Now hear me for a moment. We live in a world that prays. I think you guys probably agree with that. We live in a world that preys upon fear and anxiety. Like, for example, what do you see when you turn on the evening news? Or you're rolling up on your social media feed? It's one fear-inducing story after a moment. And then maybe, just maybe, you see like a, a good story about how firefighters, you know, saved some kittens in a tree or something, right? Just tack that on at the end. But generally speaking, 90% of what you put in front of your face 
it's causing you to be fearful or anxious about what's going on all around you. The bottom line, we all need peace to push out the fear which swirls all around us. So in this resurrection narrative, Jesus is fulfilling his promise. He gives them peace, which the world does not know of. It will cause the disciples to turn the world upside down. A faith-filled peace removes the barrier of fear so that God can use you to display and declare the gospel so that you can go talk to other people about the resurrected Christ. So my second observation is this. The, the resurrected Christ offers his disciples an everlasting and eternal peace which pushes out every trace of fear. And this peace is only given to God's people, those who believe by faith in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if you do not have the justifying and saving faith in the resurrected Christ, you will strive for peace. You will strive, you will continue to strive, and peace will remain elusive. But if you believe in the resurrected Christ, you have everything you need to fight against the worldly fear because you have Christ. So my two observations from verses 19 to 23 is that when Jesus shows up in the room, got a bunch of dudes with, who are in unbelief and fear and that, and faith, and now peace now holds sway because of Christ. Now, I want to look directly at the words of Jesus in verse 21. In connection and flowing from the offering of peace to his disciples, Jesus caused his disciples to respond. He asked his disciples to go and preach the gospel to the very people they were initially fearful of. Like, imagine the shift. Lock the door, we're going to die. Jesus shows up, and now he's like, now you need to go tell them about the crucifixion and resurrection. How we react to the resurrected Christ is crucial. Here's verse 21. Jesus said to them again, and he says to us, by the way, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Think about that for a moment. Think about the time that transpired between the moment Jesus appeared and when Jesus said to his, his disciples, go. Was it like seconds? Was it minutes? I don't think it was long. Doesn't seem like a long time. God the Father sent the Son, and the Son is now sending you. To do what? To live distinctly like Christ and to proclaim the message of Christ. That's what God is calling you to do. If you believe in the resurrected Christ, you might be asking, where am I to be sent, Right? If you're saying, go, go there, where? Well, how about your job, right? Your school, your neighborhood, or your community. I mean, like, let's not overcomplicate this. God is sending you to the places you already exist. The more I pondered this question for myself, I could not help but think of the biblical precedent being followed and what each local church needs to follow. What we read time and again in scriptures is God is calling his people to respond. We read in the New Testament that responding to the resurrection is not only for a select few. I'm thinking like those who get on the airplane, which is great. Get on the airplane, go to the 1040 window, share the gospel with those who don't know Christ, right? I'm all for that. But God is not just sending them, he's sending you. He's calling you to respond to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's for every Christian. So I want you to notice something some theologically significant in verse 21. Jesus did not ask his disciples to do something that he had not already done. 
Just as much as is part of the DNA of a Christian to be sent to bring glory to God by proclaiming the gospel, it has always been a part of God's, let's just call it like God's eternal DNA, to send for the sake of mission and glory. So please do not miss this. Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am now sending you. God the Father sent the Son, and the Son is now on mission, and now the Son sends us. And now we must respond. I'm using the word must very intentionally. We must respond to our Savior. Christianity is not a passive faith. It's not maybe I should respond. No, we're compelled to respond because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. From eternity past, Jesus knew he was always on mission to redeem his people by taking on humanity to live a perfect life, to die on a cross, although there was no right to kill him. And then as we celebrate today and every day, Jesus defeated death by rising from death, proving that death had no claim on his life. So I ask you, Christian, I ask myself, Sean Powers, how am I responding? How are you responding to the resurrected Christ? There is unity between the mission of Jesus and the mission of those who follow Jesus. I found this quote helpful from D.A. Carson. He's so clear. He's so lucid. Jesus was sent by the Father into the world by means of incarnation with the end of saving the world. Now that Jesus' disciples no longer belong to the world, they must also be sent back into the world in order to bear witness along with the paraclete, Holy Spirit. So Carson is right. Jesus was sent into the world, and now we are called into the world to bear witness to the resurrected Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ, called to take his message everywhere we go. And it is a message of Christ that impacts how we live and what we say. So we are on a mission to take the message. It's, look, give, me, give me Celsius. I'll talk to him. I'll, I'll talk to the agnostics. There's plenty of those in our culture. Muslim, I'll talk to you about the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, as well. You're the spiritually indifferent millennials, come on. Let's have a conversation. Let's talk. If there's a living soul in a specific locale with a pulse, we are called to go and share God's loving plan of redemption. Got a pulse? Let's talk. Come on over to my house. See how I live. I'm going to show you why I live distinctly for Jesus and why this message is so important. Not only for me, but for you. Your response to the resurrection illuminates how much you have bought into God's plan to tell others about Christ. Bruce Milne says, to the degree in which individuals or churches, for that matter, are committed to mission both locally and throughout the world will be the measure of how godlike or godly you are. Man, that's true, and it kind of cuts to the heart, right? How you living? Specifically, how you living for Jesus? An, an individual growing in their relationship and their discipleship includes becoming more aware of the need to respond to Christ. Jesus never intended that a person's spiritual response to the resurrection be separated from how a person lives in light of the resurrection. Even in our passage this morning, we read that Jesus continues to push the disciples to grow by putting away fear and replacing fear with peace, the peace of Christ, while at the same time sending them out to proclaim. We are to grow in our relationship with God and our understanding of the resurrection while we are going. And as we are going, God calls us to grow. So the words of Jesus tell us that we are sent out to live distinctly and tell others about the crucified and resurrected Christ. And as we go, grow, we go. A couple more points. It is kind of the Lord to give us peace. 
If you are a Christian, it is kind of the Lord to give you peace. But he does not stop there. The Lord does not want us disconnected from a relationship with him while we bear witness to the world. Therefore, we are given the Holy Spirit as we respond. Here are verses 22 and 23. Receive the Holy Spirit. Receive it. Ponder that for a moment. God the Holy Spirit. Receive that. God the Holy Spirit is in you, Christian. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. The inclusion of verses 22 and 23 loudly highlight the role of the entire Godhead in your life. We have already seen that the Father sent the Son to be on mission, right? To save the world. Now the Son tells his disciples to receive the Holy Spirit. So what are the implications of being empowered by the Holy Spirit as we act Christian in a hostile world? I'm going to share three implications to close. The first might be obvious, but it's profound. God, the Holy Spirit, empowers every Christian to continually respond to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. John Powers is very forgetful, and I need reminders. And I need reminders to respond to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I need the Holy Spirit to help me respond continually. Here are a few verses from John 16. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. So get this straight. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's saying, it's actually to your advantage that I eventually go away. Why? For if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Until the Son of God physically returns, think second advent, the Holy Spirit guides you, teaches you, and empowers you to be like Christ. The Holy Spirit illuminates to your Christian heart a greater love for your resurrected Savior. The second implication of receiving the Holy Spirit is imparted authority given to his disciples. In verse 23, it says, We have the power to forgive and not forgive. What this is alluding to is that we are like spokespeople or ambassadors for God. And like This is quite an astonishing statement because of what we read in Luke 5 and Matthew 9. In Luke 5 and Matthew 9, the Jewish leaders were bent out of shape because Jesus forgave sins during his earthly ministry. They're like, you can't do that. Only God can do that. Of course, they didn't know Jesus is God. But what do we see going on here? The same authority that Jesus had and has now resides in those who have responded to the resurrection by faith. You have that authority. Now, we have no authority of our own, but God divinely grants his authority through the Holy Spirit to advance the gospel. Therefore, we respond to the resurrection knowing that we have been given authority from God. Like Think Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I'm giving you that authority. Go. The third and last implication, which I find to be comforting, a comforting implication, is that God ultimately does the heart work in a non-Christian. He draws somebody to himself. God calls us to participate in his mission, but in doing so, God does the work, right? God does the heavy lifting. God, the Holy Spirit, is the one who draws his people to himself. When you stop to think about it, this takes all the pressure off, off us because of 
And what God is asking you is this. It's very simple. Be faithful. Be faithful. You don't need to change the world. You need to be faithful to God by being Christian right where you are, right where God has you. Never been a fan of the, we're world changers. No, you're not. No offense. I love you. You're not. I'm not. But God's calling you to be faithful right where you're at. And if he calls you to get on a plane and to go live somewhere else where there's no gospel, go. Be faithful, be faithful to that. At home with your kids, be faithful to that, to the glory of God. At work, be faithful to that, to the glory of God. Hanging out at school, be faithful to that, to the glory of God. Right where you're at. That's what God's calling you to do. Be faithful right where you're at. Now, I am well aware this Easter sermon now sounds like an evangelism sermon. <laughs> I get that. I'm just trying to be faithful to the text. But I do not think this is an evangelism sermon at all. It is a sermon about how Christians respond to the resurrected, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Allow me to make my point from another perspective. I never anticipate the need for Redemption Hill Church to have an evangelism pastor. No need for pastor of evangelism. Why? Because of you. Because of you. You're the one who's called to go. Sean Powers is called to go. God's calling us just to be Christian. That's how we're supposed to respond. Be faithful Christians. The way to respond to the skepticism of Celsius is for you to live in the power of the resurrection. One of the most remarkable testimonies of the resurrection of Christ is a bunch of people changed because of faith in the resurrection of Christ. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.